Hey, this is Dan with episode 20 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. Today you get to meet Rich Rhinus. Rich is an attorney turned Krispy Kreme franchisee with a wild ride in the franchise world. When you get knocked on your butt, get up punching. Don't just get up. Get up and do something positive. Don't find some consultant to take over for you. Get up and do it yourself. You know what the problems are. There's an old saying that when you're in a hole, stop digging. But to me, that's only half the story. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about. Learning from the best, how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. So today we'll talk with Richard Rhinus, a partner at Thompson Coburn, who also found himself selling donuts and scaling quickly. From what I understand, there were a lot of highs and lows in Krispy Kreme Adventure, and I'm excited to have Rich share his story and lessons learned with my audience. Rich, before we even get started, I think I have the most important question for my listeners. What is your favorite Krispy Kreme donut? Oh, the original glaze. Oh, you're Gotta going have to... it right off the line. You're going original glaze on me? What about the glaze jelly? I mean, that's my favorite. I can't take anything away from it, Dan. <laughs> I mean, there is no uh, variety that I haven't tried without delight. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, no, listen, a huge fan of the product, of course, probably too much, but uh, that's a good thing for you. So, Rich, first... Talk with my listeners a little bit about your legal career. Uh, did you grow up wanting to be a lawyer? No, I did not. Most of your listeners may not re- relate to this, but when I grew up, Lois and I got married in 1964, there was a war. And uh, if you were married, you were exempt from going to war. And Lois and I had decided we would, uh, in 66, 67, want a family. I graduated from Princeton with the notion that Uppermost in my mind was that uh, I would commence uh, my steps towards a career so we could have a family. And that meant not going to war. So did you have a specific type of law you wanted to practice? When I decided to be a lawyer, it was largely due to the fact that my older brother had become a lawyer and was practicing, and I modeled uh, my career after his, which involved both transactional and litigation work. I always saw myself as a litigator, though. And so then did you – so how many years did you practice, practice law before you started on, on the new venture? Uh, from 1970 to 1998, and then I gave it two years and then moved uh, into the donut world. Okay. So, so I have to ask, so why did you always see yourself as a litigator? I enjoy standing up and making arguments for worthy clients. Nice, nice. So good communicator, very important in all types of business. So then at some point – you had this, you know, this thought that your billable hours weren't scalable at the level that you wanted. So I want my listeners to know, like, how in the world did you come to decide to risk everything for a donut? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, lawyers sell their time, so the inventory is pretty limited. Uh, what I had in mind was trying to create a source of income not dependent upon the hours. Uh, and I had built a shopping center in Riverside with uh, some friends, and we were looking for non-ubiquitous 
Southern California shopping mall tenants. And my son-in-law, who ran real estate for Sony in New York, found Krispy Kreme and thought, well, gee, it's not west of the Mississippi, so it's certainly not ubiquitous. And it would enable you to earn money 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and and not spend um, your time doing it. So I thought, well, this is a great way to give my kids an opportunity in the future that they can't get from my practice of law. And it was real attractive to me because it wasn't ubiquitous. And uh, I didn't realize in 1998 when I committed myself to this that I was risking everything. It, it, my, like most entrepreneurs, I thought the risks were a lot less than they ultimately turned out to be. So, so I have to go back for a second because you just kind of glazed over the statement that you made that is actually pretty huge. You said, you said, I just decided to invest in a shopping center. So what, how did that come about? Did you, were you investing in real estate at the time? Did you have an interest in real estate separate from the legal side? I did. I had been involved in the real estate business um, pretty much all my life. I actually started when I was a second-year law student. Uh, and along the way, one of my clients came to me with a request for proposal by uh, the redevelopment agency in Riverside to develop a shopping center to serve as a village for students at UC Riverside. And he, when he asked for my legal help, I said, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, and and you've done a great thing here. And he said, well, why don't you be my partner? So that's how I got into it. So I want my listeners to know. So when it comes to franchise, because I have listeners right now, I guarantee you that are thinking about starting a franchise. And this is a perfect opportunity for them to get some real insight into the process. Like, talk to me a little bit about the dynamic of owning and growing a franchise. A franchise is a proven business model. When you acquire a franchise, you have to be convinced that uh, the concept is a proven concept. You aren't pioneering. Uh, to a certain extent, that was true. Krispy Kreme was founded in 1934. Uh, it had been through recessions and depressions, been through wars, and it had its ups and downs and changes in leadership. But overall, it continued to be a force in its category. So we believed, and I think this is true in the case of most franchises, that the business model can uh, provide you with a lower level of risk than starting out on your own. So you say there's a lower level of risk, but earlier you said, you know, the risk was, ended up being greater than what you anticipated. Clarify that a little bit, like what, go, the mindset going into it versus the reality of it. Operating one donut shop involves a low level of risk, especially with an existing brand and a system to make the best donut on the planet, all of which Krispy Kreme's franchise uh, promised. Operating 42 stores in Southern California, an area of 350 miles by 350 miles with 24 million people in it, with 1,400 employees is a different level of risk. Absolutely, absolutely. So how are you as the business owner involved in the strategy piece of it all? I mean, from a franchise perspective. Well, that's a temporal question. In the beginning, I was heavily involved and we made certain decisions at the beginning uh, that were good and some that were not so good. Uh, by committing ourselves to build 42 stores in seven years, we had committed ourselves to an undoable build out. Uh, you can't find that uh, real estate in Southern California uh, and the real estate bets you make are long term. Uh, 
Um, so that was a bad mistake, strategically unwise. And it, it caused us to take on debt, which was, in the end, uh, very instrumental in uh, the difficulties that we faced. So, and, and that goes back to, because I was reading an article that you wrote in the, for Franchise Times where you shared that that was an aggressive growth strategy. And did you think that that, you, you're saying now that that was unrealistic, but go through that experience. What would your advice be for scaling a company? Um, my, my initial reaction to this in hindsight is I should have committed for a small number of uh, restaurants, franchise, donut shops, developed them, uh, taken them to the point where you uh, got a good sense of what retail stasis is, that is the predictable retail volume you'll have every year. And then once I'd proven the business model in Southern California, move from there to a bigger model. Instead of committing to 42 stores, maybe commit to five. That would have been more sensible. The problem with it logistically was that as um, a leadership team, the franchisor at Krispy Kreme wanted areas developed and a long-term commitments from their franchisees. They did not want to have a bunch of smaller franchisees, but rather one franchisee in each area or in each state. Uh, and, and I can understand their reasoning. Uh, it, it did force us to make commitments that ultimately proved to be unworkable. So is it possible to negotiate with some of these big companies as, as a franchisee? You can. Panera, for example, offered us pods. These are 15-store development agreements, and many of the franchisors offer smaller development deals, uh, two or three units over a period of time that's reasonable. That's negotiable, but if you want to control a brand in a large territory, uh, you run a, up against uh, a determination on the part of the franchise or to see to it that the area is really built out. So what does it look like to build a business culture with a franchise system? Like, I mean, how many employees did you have? I mean, go back to that number. That was a huge number. At peak, 1,400. Yeah, 1,400. So, I mean, very difficult. I mean, it's not easy to create that kind of culture. I mean, how did you even start that? And especially with that significant growth that you were going through. Well, it's such a good question because it's uh, it's not our business. It is a business that's headquartered in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which we are effectuating in Southern California. So to begin with, the culture can't be entirely your own. Our view of the world was that we would be a preferred employer, that we would run our business as though it were a public company, that we would be completely transparent to everyone with whom we deal, dealt, all of our constituents, first and foremost, each other and our employees, and thereafter with our franchisor and other constituents, basically our customers as well. So you create a uh, an open door policy with employees, customers, franchisor, and professionals who represent your investors. That created a uh, culture that involved a great deal of openness uh, it served us well, uh, but you live in an environment where being as transparent as we wanted to be can also have uh, another side to it. Well, talk to me about that other side. I mean, what were some of the pitfalls with that? When we uh, went to Krispy Kreme and said to them that their brand was unknown west of the Mississippi, that in Southern California, half of the population did not understand the words crispy and cream meant donut. Uh, and that we wanted to control the environment in which those donuts appeared. That is to say, we did not want to get into a, 
distribution business where Krispy Kreme donuts would appear in supermarkets or gas stations. Krispy Kreme didn't understand that. They were unwilling to accept the that business in Southern California would be conducted in a manner different than it was conducted in the uh, heritage markets in the Southeast, where Krispy Kremes do appear in those venues. Our view was that if the donut is offered to a customer under our control, it will be offered at its premium. You'll get it at its freshest, made perfectly, and displayed perfectly uh, in an environment that is clean and one that uh, is easy to access. Um, their view was that we could enhance the value of the franchise by not only offering that, but also offering the product in supermarkets and grocery stores and uh, in other venues where the display and sale of the product was out of our hands. Uh, that openness with them uh, resulted in a, an immediate uh, threat to terminate our franchise. Wow, what a, what an incredible moment that must have been for the company. And and I know that in that one article uh, in the Franchise Times, you you mentioned the disaster of the wholesale experiment. And so, if you don't mind, you know, tell my listeners. First of all, you know, you explained wholesale, but why was it a disaster? And what did you really learn from that? Krispy Kreme is a product that's engineered to be consumed within fourteen hours. It's impossible to service eight hundred grocery stores in Southern California and have the consumer have that experience. The product will be stale before the consumer tastes it. Instead of being an ambassador of goodwill, that is a terrific product sold to many more people, you have people uh, purchasing the product and consuming it with the reaction, what's the buzz all about? Why is Krispy Kreme such a hot product? Why is that brand uh, listed by Forbes magazine or Fortune magazine as the hottest brand in America? I don't get it. Uh, so in our brand building effort, that's why I said to you, we needed to control the environment in which the product was consumed. In addition to that, we had to purchase 51 trucks, hire 75 drivers, acquire routing software, and deal with wholesale customers who are accustomed to purchasing a product and paying for it in 55 days. Our retail customers pay for it when they consume it. Uh, this is a major change in business model, and it requires a whole different look at things. Uh, we were just getting set into how to operate a great retail business when all of a sudden we had to be in a grocery distribution business, and it's entirely different. Was Krispy Kreme open to that kind of feedback? No. Hmm. Interesting. So how do you flex through that and, and work through that? Uh, with great difficulty, uh, because Krispy Kreme uh, and uh, its franchisees, and it, this is the case with uh, with virtually every franchise, not every, but many franchises, Krispy Kreme's interest is in top-line volume, not in profitability. Yes, they have an interest in profitability. They don't want to see their franchisees go out of business, but they are paid based upon sales, not based upon profits. So if we are selling to grocery stores, they get paid a percentage right off the top. If that, those sales are not profitable, it doesn't undermine their short-term goals. It does undermine long-term goals, and therein lies a second problem, which uh, may not be in that article, and that is a Main Street business and a Wall Street business that are strategic partners may have a misalignment. Wall Street is run by executives whose tenure is four to five years, our business is run by executives who are making 30-year bets on real estate, constructing buildings, offering careers in the long term for as many people as we could. We wanted people to grow with us, and that takes time. 
So our interests were very long-term. We had a long horizon. Their interests were shorter. So, all right. So then let's talk about this for a second, because I know then it hit a crucial time, and the market kind of spun out of control, and you had to file for bankruptcy. Well, and, not quite. Okay, then tell me. Straighten me out. Um, Krispy Kreme um, came to us in uh, 2007 after we had weathered the storm and had had satisfied our lenders uh, that we were relatively stable and and said to us, we'll buy the rest of your business if you will do so through a reorganization, a Chapter 11, which is a type of bankruptcy. We only went into bankruptcy because of a contractual duty to Krispy Kreme and agreed with them that they could purchase the balance of our business through that bankruptcy. So we filed in August of 2007 with the notion that Krispy Kreme would be purchasing our business in November. What was it? That, that didn't happen. Uh, yeah, no. So, so what was it like to lead your family through this? I mean, I just, I know that the, the pressure of all that, and you've got 1,400 employees, and you've got storefronts all over the Southern California, which, as you know, is, like you said, a large geographic area. I mean, what was that feeling like? Well, at one point, I felt suicidal. Uh, I'd never let my family down. I'd spent an entire career solving other people's problems, and I remember as queer as if it were today, sitting in, in uh, with my wife and saying to her, you know, all my life I've solved other people's problems, and I can't figure out how to solve this one. Uh, it was miserable to fire people. Over a period of a year, we had to fire a 1,000 people. And to ask managers to fire people who are not at all the reason, their their behavior, their their performance had nothing whatsoever to do with the termination of their jobs. That is a terrible experience to go through. It's it just uh, I was in tears half the time going into a store and seeing employees who had been with us from day one and having to terminate them because the store had to be sold in order to s settle up with the banks uh, and to say to them, you're not to blame for this. Uh, that's a, it's awful. You know, and, and, and I, I empathize with you from the perspective of I was in the title business in 2006, 2007 in Florida and making those cuts, especially not only wasn't it their behavior, but they were so loyal and they were good people and they had great families. And so that attachment and that, that caring and that love that you have for those people, you know, all of a sudden you feel like you're letting them down. So, yeah, how did you do that well and with tact? Like, how did, how did that happen? I'm not sure that the, the those who suffered through this with me would say I did it well or with tact. I remember, for example, we were not getting paid by a grocery store. I won't name who it was, but it was a big national chain. And they sent an executive to our office to look at records. And they hadn't paid us, and they owed us $600,000. And I said to the executive in our office, who was a hostile, how many employees of yours have you fired since you stopped paying us? And he said to me, I don't understand that question. And I said, I'll repeat it. How many of your employees have you fired since you stopped paying us? And he said, I still don't understand the question. So I said, let me make it clear. We've had to fire a thousand people because you aren't paying us. 
And with that, I asked him to immediately leave the premises. It may not have been the most tactful moment of my life, but you end up, Dan, saying to employees, don't ask me why, just do what I'm telling you. You run short of patience and certainly short of tact, and you begin to lead by intimidation, and it flows from fear. If you find yourself in that situation, you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I being the kind of leader I ought to be? These are bad times. Am I going to lead my people through this by intimidating them? And when I realized that, I changed my behavior. So interesting. So interesting. And so would, looking back now with time between us, what would you have done differently during that process? Oh, at each juncture, I would have made changes. We over-leveraged the business. We didn't need to do that. We underestimated the bargaining leverage we had with Krispy Kreme. We're the largest franchisee paying uh, more royalties than any other franchisee, buying more um, donut mix and sugar and shortening and all the rest from them than anyone else. And that gave us leverage we didn't fully appreciate. So when I, in 2002, went to Krispy Kreme and said, we need to slow down. And their answer was, well, we'll let you slow down for a year, but you have to go in the wholesale business. I didn't have the courage to say to them, we'll take the consequences. We made a mistake in committing to 42 stores. It causes us to put too much leverage on the business, make bad real estate decisions. And frankly, we can't train people well enough to work in our stores at the rate we are forced to hire them. We need to slow down and we should not be in the wholesale business. The the product isn't engineered for that. We need you to say that's okay. What will it cost us? What price must we pay to change the terms of the deal? I didn't have the gumption to do that at the appropriate time. And in hindsight, I certainly would have stuck to my guns and said to them, we'll accept the consequences, whatever they may be. The proper way to deal with it would have been to say to them, I'm paying you X in royalty. What if I pay you X plus Y? Won't you let us slow down and get our feet on the ground uh, rather than to punish us in some other way? Wouldn't this make up for it? Or here's Kern County. You can refranchise it. I know we've already paid for it, but Take that county, it's a big county, and find another franchisee. Won't that be enough to satisfy you that we really need this holding period, this waiting period? Um, I can go on and on with the decisions that I made in hindsight. You know, it's 2020, right? And um, as I look back on it now, those decisions were very, very critical. Um, In the end, I made a good decision. When Krispy Kreme told us they weren't going to buy us out of bankruptcy, out of the Chapter 11, I decided we would go back in. I persisted and decided we have a viable business here. Let's just hold on. And in 2010, we repurchased the company out of bankruptcy. Wow. And so how's it going now? Like where, where does it stand right currently? Well, in 2010, when we emerged, uh, we had 11 stores, and those stores um, were producing a very modest amount of sales revenue and virtually no profits. Those same 11 stores in 2015, 16, and 17 are producing almost double the revenue and substantial profits. So 
we're delighted that we stayed in the business. I'm not involved on a day-to-day basis. The strategic decisions are no longer mine to make. I, I volunteered to step away and let Wendy, my daughter, who's in incredible business person and her husband Roger also an incredible business person and Brett Garlinghouse our uh, number one employee first hire run the business entirely with a very very uh, bare bones uh, back office which is critical to running a franchise business you have to keep your overhead down and uh, that business is thriving today because of the persistence and our ability to hang in there when we least anticipated uh, owning the business, when Krispy Kreme decided not to proceed. So why was Brett your first hire? And what were the traits that you saw in him that make him still such an influential part of the company today? His standards of retail sales and retail operations are at the highest they can be. Our stores are number one in the Krispy Kreme system, not only in sales, and profitability, but also in these three elements, quality, service, cleanliness. We ask our managers, and this is all coming from Brett and another guy named Dave Anderson, who uh, is no longer working for us, but is in my mind instrumental in our success. We ask our managers to control what they can control, what's within their four walls. Not not who comes in the door, because we don't do any advertising but the quality, service, and cleanliness only within their four walls. And we asked them to generate a four-wall profit based upon that. Uh, And our our focus on quality, service, and cleanliness has paid off. And it flows from Brett. So, Rich, you you said, you talked about your daughter, Wendy, and you said, you know, she's such a great business mind. So, you know, family-owned businesses are not always the easiest and dealing with family within the business. A lot of uh, family-owned business listeners out there Talk to him about the dynamic of that. Well, it's, uh, it, I should give you some context. Wendy's the oldest of five. Um, and she is a very determined, optimistic person who rolls up her sleeves, gets on her hands and knees, uh, picks up cigarette butts in the parking lot. Uh, she understands that the lowest, in terms of in-store ranking, the lowest paid uh, individual in our stores is as important as the highest paid. Uh, she looks at herself as being a toolbox. She is a person the managers turn to for help. What do you need to make your business more successful? That's her role. Um, she'll drive anywhere, do anything for a manager in need, and has done so over time. More importantly, as Krispy Kreme has gone through the franchisor, has gone through management changes, our relationship has gone from terrible to superb, largely due to the fact that she speaks her mind honestly and openly with the same transparency I uh, described before. And the new management and ownership of Krispy Kreme is now a private company, not a public company. That new management has responded positively to what she's doing. Six of the top 10 Krispy Kremes, she and Roger and Brett operate. Wow, that's great. What a... What a great testimony to you and, and the leadership that you have within the family then also in the business side. I mean, that's just incredible. And what a great story and what an incredible ride. So, Rich, I mean, I have to say that that has to have taught you or at least given you a glimpse into what real courage looks like. I mean, how does that then affect the rest of your life, the way you're living right now? 
Well, I think in the, it, it certainly has helped materially, but uh, you're asking me a much more profound and fundamental question. Uh, I, I would say that you have to understand your limits. You have to understand things could get worse before they get better, and you better be thinking that the bottom could fall out as well as the sky's the limit. Uh, you've got to balance those two things. I, I talk about uh, this to those who will listen, uh, and it's fundamental to who I am as a person. I made a presentation to some welfare recipients that we hired in 2001, uh, or 2002, when we needed help in our stores and couldn't find it because um, unemployment levels were, were so low. And we rewarded these welfare recipients with them, guaranteed employment. And when I stood up on the podium to give them their uh, offers of employment, I only had 15 in my hand, and there was an audience of 75 people. And I asked the administrator of the program, what was I to do since there were so many people out there, but I only had 15 diplomas. And the answer was, you know, you're hiring 15 people, but you're affecting their aunts and their uncles and their children. And that's who you're looking at in your audience. That's the impact you're having. To say nothing of your customers and the other employees in your stores, you're hiring people and putting them to work and inviting them into the great American contract. That's profound. So I realized whether you're selling donuts or you're selling legal services, in the end, it's about human beings and the positive impact you can make on their lives. That's the lesson. No, I love that, and I and I think we should all listen carefully to what those words, you know, what you just said, because you really do impact lives and families. And you know, I always say, when you have a good day, you know, who does that go to? It it just goes down the line to your employees, to their families. When it's a bad, bad day, what goes down the line? A lot of negative stuff. So um, they're listening to you as a leader and watching you and all of your uh, actions and and the words that you use. So let me go back for a second though, because first of all, I'm, I'm fascinated that you were investing in, in real estate first, and then you invested. In, in Krispy Kreme. So I hope you don't mind me asking, but how do you procure capital to open the first door? Or did you bootstrap it? Did you had, had you saved money? Did you get financing? Like, does the franchise help you with the funding? Like, where did that money all come from? I didn't realize it at the time, but Krispy Kreme uh, in, two, in 1998, when I went out to market to raise the money that I needed to build this business, was a brand that people who've been to the Southeast understood had tremendous power. When I made a few phone calls to investors and said, gee, I want to develop Krispy Kreme in Southern California, would, would you have an interest? Every one of them responded positively. I got calls from baseball players, representatives. Can we invest? We've been, we play ball in the Southeast. We know Krispy Kreme. I had call from, uh, calls from Hollywood personalities and other celebrities wanting to be party and parcel to this. So I, I'm somewhat glib about the fact that within five minutes, I had raised all the money I needed, but it wasn't me. Uh, it, it was the fact that I had this amazing brand. I always tell people, if you want to know the secret to a great brand, make the platinum standard product or service. That's the secret to a great brand. Easily said, very difficult to do. So I, I made a few phone calls, Dan, and to be honest with you, one one of them said, however much money you want to raise, you've got. Wow, what a, what a great opportunity. So let me just, you know, kind of, 
one more question about Krispy Kreme, and then what are the most significant lessons? Like, what's the most significant lesson, the impactful lesson that you learned from the Krispy Kreme experience? When you get knocked on your butt, get up punching. (laughs) Don't just get up. Get up and do something positive. Don't find some consultant to take over for you. Get up and do it yourself. You know what the problems are. There's an old saying that when you're in a hole, stop digging. But to me, that's only half the story. You have to stop digging, stop doing the things that are causing you pain and suffering. But you have to get up and do something positive in your life and in the lives of your employees, your customers, and everyone else involved. You have to be positive and proactive. It's easy to be feel suicidal and think the world would be better off without you, which is the way I felt. Uh, but when you finally stop wallowing in self-pity and realize that help's going to come from within, then you get up punching. You know, I that, feel like my dad told me that. I love that, and you're clearly a good father. And and I just I don't think you have to play the victim. I don't think you have to choose. You know to be the victim. You can actually fight back and, and make things happen. So love that advice and, and really appreciate it. And, and thank you for sharing that, that part of the story with me. It's interesting because the sum of successful leadership can be broken into three parts, right? I mean, like, you know, how do we learn? And then, you know, how do we lead? And then what legacy will that create with the life that we lived? So you and I met at Vistage worldwide. So obviously staying fresh, cutting edge and developing is important to you. What other things do you do to make sure that you're learning and staying fresh? Listen. Listen. Go into the stores and listen to what customers have to say. This is particular to my business, obviously, but uh, as a lawyer, the same is true. Listen to what your clients have to say. You have to ask questions that are open-ended and let them tell you. Uh, You can ask questions in different ways to see if the answers vary. But listen to what your people have to say. Listen to the customer. Be at the point of sale. This is the greatest learning experience of them all. When you hear a general manager in Ontario who has been with you since 1998, and in the food service business, that's like forever, hear her say to you, the exact cost of making a peanut butter-filled donut and what other plans and operational issues arise from doing that, you realize she knows so much more about the business than you do, you better darn well listen. So I would say you can take courses. Those are helpful. You can get people like you and me, Dan, to help you look at things perhaps differently. But if you listen to your customers and your employees and ask them open-ended questions, You'll be okay. So from a personal standpoint, any publications that you read? Do you have routines? Harvard Business Review I like. Um, I have to confess that I've become more and more dependent on online sources of information. I know how biased they can be uh, and how loopy it can be. You want to stay within the realm of what's comfortable. So you create an environment like Facebook where it's only sources in which you can believe. Uh, that's the dangerous thing. But I read two newspapers every day, and I like Harvard Business Review specifically for business issues. Um, and uh, other than that, I am looking at different news channels to open up my mind. I do like uh, other countries' views of America. 
that that gives me a perspective that I wouldn't see on American TV or in American newspapers. Do you ever read The Economist? I do, and I like The Guardian and BBC, uh, obviously because they're in English. It helps a lot. <laughs> so, so now, what what does leadership mean to you personally? Just leadership in general. How, what comes to mind? Well, I, I it's the, these lessons sound trite, but if you don't walk the walk. You can't be a leader. If you aren't open and honest with your employees, they know it. They can see you're concealing something. And, and, and I would take that right to the P&L. You can't be embarrassed about what you pay yourself, and you ought to be thinking about whether or not the differential between you and the lowest paid employee in your organization is too great. It strikes me that transparency can have a downside, but the, the rewards from being open are greater. Uh, and... I look at myself as being responsible for the pain and suffering of a lot of people that I had to fire, and I'm willing to accept that responsibility openly. So what you talk about transparency a lot. What are some of the rewards that you've experienced from being transparent within the company? I've seen employees grow from a welfare recipient to a manager of a store. You can't beat that. Yeah, that's great. It's the American dream. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, that's how we solve poverty, right? Give people the opportunity to, exactly. to excel. Give them the opportunity to do well, to, to taste success, and, and it feels good. And share. Yeah, and share it, and, and then and let everyone else uh, have the opportunity to enjoy it down the line, the family, the, the kids. I mean, it's just it's so rewarding. That's why I love entrepreneurship. I love meeting successful leaders. It's actually very addicting to be around people like that because they're problem solvers. They're not excuse makers. We, we all make a contract with one another since we all live in an urban environment because we can't provide ourselves with food and clothing and even shelter. Uh, what we can do is what we do. Uh, you can practice law, earn some money, and pay other people to provide those things to you. And as long as everyone in the system is playing by those rules, it works really well. Uh, but when people don't play by the rules, they have to be singled out. And you have to identify them and remove them from your environment. Uh, but I think generally people do play by those rules, and the system works really well. It just needs to be allowed to do that. So just a question that's fun to get a pulse on how we progress as people and leaders. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self and why? Don't sell your hours. This is a bad idea. When you get to be my age and you're still selling your time, it means you can't share it with your friends and family. I can't, my kids remind me now that I was trying to build 200 to 250 hours a month. That means spending 300 to 350 hours in the office. It's inconsistent with being a father of five, now a grandfather of 15. Uh, so one bit of advice I'd give my 20-year-old self is go to business school. Don't go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> and try to have balance in your life. Try to recognize that um, there, there's tremendous value in being with your friends and family and especially with your wife um, that you you may not be able to see in the your checkbook or, you know, in the size of the house you live in, but you, you reap those rewards in different ways. I always say to people who ask me about what's the secret to raising healthy, uh, happy children. And the secret to that is love their mother. <laughs> That's great advice. Great advice. You share a little bit about your family and personal life with me. You know, if you don't mind, 
how do you maintain balance between work-life presence? I mean, you say you talked about it and you have these billable hours, but right now, like, are, are you are you present when you're there now within the family? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Get down on your hands and knees, look that baby in the eye, and enjoy building blocks with them as much as you would have if you were a kid. You have to keep the child within you. And if you do that, you're present. Yeah, again, just really appreciate that because, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are working paycheck to paycheck. They're they're barely making it by. They're trying to make it happen. Then they come home and there are demands at home. There are demands for vacations. There are demands for time. It's it's hard to, to make everyone happy. And I think that if you can just be present, I mean, even if it's two hours, you give them the best two hours they've ever had in their entire life. I think there's a lot of power in that. So what would be the best advice or life advice that you'd give your kids or grandkids? I and mean, you've got 15 grandkids. Congratulations on that. But 15 grandkids. What advice as a grandfather would you give them? I think that hard work is a term that has become trivialized. It shouldn't be. Hard work is hard work. And be proud of it. Get up every morning and say to yourself, the last 24 hours, I did my best to be productive. And if you can say that more days than not, I think you've lived a productive life. And if you've lived a productive life, you can't ask much more of yourself. So, Rich, what would make you feel more fulfilled today? I'd like to roll back the clock and spend less time billing clients and more time with my kids. That would make me feel more fulfilled. I'd like to have a hobby that I could do with my hands. I don't have that. And I feel the need oftentimes for it. It could be in a garden. It could be in a uh, uh, workshop in my house, something that I can do with my hands. You brought up feeling the need to have a hobby that you can do with your hands. Why, Why is that? I sit at my desk and use my brain and read. And then I go home and I don't like TV much. So I read at home and I, I have a physical need. I played football throughout my life. Uh, I'm a physical guy. I, it's just me. And I, I need something more tactile, uh, something that I can create. You know, one of the things that I always felt when we started making donuts was this was a tangible product. And I'd like a tangible product uh, to result from a hobby as well. So I ask the audience when I speak to answer the question, how do you want your children to describe you to their children? What will your legacy be? Richard, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? You know, I, somebody asked me what I would like inscribed on my tombstone, and the answer to that is vacancy. Um, but I, 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 your question is more real than that, and I can't answer it with a joke. Um, I, I think that like most people, I'd like them to think that my dad was a productive person in life who taught us the important values um, in life uh, and the importance of family and who provided for us to the point of sacrifice uh, and that his goal in life was to make their lives, our lives as children, better than his so that we then could lead productive lives that the grandchildren's lives would be better than the children's lives and so on. Something like that. It's kind of crude, but that's the way I'd like to be remembered. 
Well, Rich, let me say from an outsider's perspective, loved hearing your legacy and have a strong feeling you're right there with that. So congratulations, because, you know, what I love about this interview is your transparency, not only just with your employees when you talk about it with them, but then the lessons that you've learned. So the transparency that you've had with me that, that my listeners get to hear, because the reality is it's not always perfect in life. And the fact that you say, don't just stop digging, but actually come up with solid, you know, solutions to a problem that just, you can't just stop it. You got to then actually be proactive. I mean, there's so many lessons here in this interview for our listeners to learn. And I just really appreciate you sharing them with us today. Rich, thank you so much. I am sure that our listeners can be better off uh, after hearing you speak and, and the words that you used and just really appreciate your time today. It was my pleasure, Dan. Listeners, we are also working on some other fun, exciting things coming from the Quiggle Group, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, though, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Garage to Goliath. Subscribing helps others find the show in iTunes. Please also leave an honest review. That's how I get better and make this better for you. And I'd be so grateful to you if you'd share this podcast with others on social media. Send a quick email to someone you think would enjoy it. Just let me get the word out so we can continue to build our leadership legacies together. 